I'll play you a sound. You guess what it is. Anything? No ideas? Okay, I'll give you a hint. Let me have our friends for this episode introduce themselves. My name is Isaiah I'm a system professor at University of Wisconsin Medicine. Uh, my passion and life goal is changing how we're doing assessment in schools. I'm Louisa Rosenheck. I'm an ed tech designer and researcher. Hi, I'm uh, Dr. Nancy Sai, and I am currently a fourth year postdoctoral fellow at MIT um, at the McGovern um, Institute for Brain Research. <laughs> Okay, you got it now, right? It's assessment. I know. It doesn't sound like assessment. Not any assessment. We're talking about game-based assessment uh, or ludic assessment, if you prefer. That's a word I had to like do some research on. Of all the assessments you've ever taken, which would you say was most playful? The question is so paradigm-changing that... I'm not even sure where to start with how much it might have changed my life if assessment was more playful. How much time might I have saved doing things instead of avoiding the pressure of a test? YJ, Nancy, and Louisa all came together around a project that was funded by the National Science Foundation's Cyber Learning Program. I'll put links in the show notes. And while they're all off doing other work now, and I'll let you check out their bios for where they headed after this project. They all continue to ask a couple of questions that really started with that project. A, what new assessment literacies could teachers develop around the learning analytics generated by game-based assessments? And how can interactive teacher-facing dashboards be designed to generate insights that complement teachers' existing knowledge of student learning? These are just a couple of the things that they were after. From the project site, game-based assessments have been shown to be a powerful context to measure students' 21st century skills. By eliciting evidence of skills in an embedded, authentic, and playful environment, they present the potential for assessments to go beyond measuring outcomes of content knowledge to shed light on thought processes. I'm excited for you to meet this group and to open a chapter in your thinking, if you haven't already, to ask a question that if you're a gamer, you've probably asked before, what would it look like to bring more of this into my classroom or the digital environment that I mediate as a course or an experience? I hope you'll check out the show notes for links to full bios for each of the guests, also for where their work has taken them and chime in. Find me on Twitter, M-A Lesser, or search us up lately LinkedIn has been the easiest way to get in touch and join the discussion. My huge thanks to all three of my guests, to MIT for seeding the work and for all of the ways that the NSF has supported and is helping to disseminate some of these ideas into new projects. Enjoy the conversation. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about learning in the digital age. I'm Mark Lesser. Let's talk about game-based assessment um, and start, I hope, with with a kind of warm-up to get everybody reacquainted. You all uh, have been working on this now in kind of different pockets of your work, came together around a, a project you worked on together, but then now for a little while you've been uh, off in other directions. Um, so I think as kind of a warm-up question, maybe it's a good opportunity to let's let's um, pretend for a second that we're talking to a group of educators who have not thought at all about game-based assessment. And dispel for me the myth that game-based assessment is just chocolate over broccoli. Games or more playful experience in general are really, really good at um helping people to participate, uh, helping people to um, persist, uh, present interesting yet challenging problems to people without overwhelming them. Uh, So those are really good venues to also understand what 
you know what you can do, what you believe mm. uh, kind of things. So I believe that because games are wonderful in terms of, of helping students, especially the ones that are not really in love with how assessment is done in schools, mm. um, because it doesn't have a lot of kind of emotional baggage wrapped around assessment or you know past negative experiences they might have with assessment. Uh, it really creates a new opportunity for educators to think about how we can measure what we care using interesting, less scary, less boring uh, activities and things uh, with students to kind of measure and support things beyond math standards. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think, I don't know how I, I think about that whole chocolate covered broccoli metaphor personally because I love that because I like chocolate I was like, <laughs> uh, I, was like I love some uh, chocolate covered kale that sounds delicious like mm. I was even thinking about that so I don't know when they're not really getting good nutritious nutritious stuff at school anyways in terms of assessment you know chocolate covered broccoli sounds good to me and you know yes it's still assessment yes we're trying to like cover or uh, remove some you know negative flavors uh, with Mm -hmm. broccoli, but if that helps uh, in terms of supporting learners and understanding, you know, what they can do better than what we have in schools today, I think it's a good thing. (laughs) Yeah, not such a bad deal. And I would say, I think the really important concept to keep in mind here is, is the same distinction that I like to make between gamification and game-based learning. And I know that there there are a lot of people out there these days who kind of use those two terms interchangeably. But I think for most of us who are learning games designers, um, we see them as very different things. So gamification is kind of adding an extra layer of, uh, you know, points and badges and things like that onto uh, an existing learning experience or something else. Um, so those those elements are kind of they're basically separate from the actual interaction, the activity, um, and the learning. Whereas game-based learning is, it really goes deeper. It's um, it's where the the game mechanics, the interactions, the stuff you're doing in the game is intentionally designed to be the learning experience so that what you're doing in the game is what you're learning. Um, It's not like you do some learning and then you get some points and that's kind of fun, right? So there's a lot more intrinsic motivation and there's a lot more opportunities for natural sort of scaffolding and leveling and and um, building on on what you know and what you've discovered about the system you're working in. Um, and so I think that with game-based assessment, it's the same thing, right? You could have an assessment that was just a typical multiple choice test with points on it, and that would feel definitely like chocolate-covered broccoli and probably <clears throat> wouldn't wouldn't add that much to the game or the assessment experience. But the kind of game-based assessment that we have worked to design, um, you know, it's it's this kind of rich game environment where things are hopefully more open-ended than a than a conventional assessment. There are more pathways to success and more different ways that you can problem solve. And what that means is there are more ways that you can demonstrate your learning and demonstrate your thinking and your strategies. And not everybody has to show their success in the same way. So these are some of the things I think that um, really make games great for assessment. Um, and then I think assessment actually also brings uh, a useful layer to games because people like to get better at things. And so, you know, making the assessment kind of, um, although we, we people don't always want to hear the word assessment, but having some indication of how you're doing and what other strategies you might try and what areas you're really doing great at and what areas you might need to grow in, that is can also be really interesting if it's done well and in a playful, engaging kind of way. What are, um, Nancy, I was, I'm curious to have you just describe some of the, um, what I'm sure will feel like basics to you, but um, describe for people, like, what are some of the things that are happening cognitively um, in a game-based environment 
that are advantages to the process of assessment? Yeah. So building off of just the conversation that we had about like chocolate covered broccoli, like the first thing that I'm thinking of in terms like, and also bringing in my very different like psychological and like cognitive neuroscience perspective is that a big issue in terms of testing is something called stereotype threat. And I don't know if you've ever heard of stereotype threat, but this is actually a quite pervasive problem that certain populations of students, particularly students from you know, that might come from a, like a disadvantaged environment or like low SES or low socioeconomic status students, or even like students who come from like a minority background, they oftentimes experience a lot of, like a lot more stress going into an assessment mm-hmm. environment. Um, this basically priming them to think about a stereotype, like for example, like, you know, women are bad at math or like, you know, or um, Asians are bad at like English or something, priming them of certain types of stereotypes um, or like even like making them, if they're more aware of certain like negative attributes um, about their cohort of population or something like that actually can impair their performance. So it's like less than what they can actually um, perform at. And so if the purpose of an assessment is to really capture someone's ability, you want to do like, it's really imperative to create an environment in which you're kind of um, decreasing the sort of emotional stress that surrounds um, the assessment component. And oftentimes, if you say, if you tell someone they're, you know, taking a math test, you know, people are a lot more triggered by that than if you say, like, you're going to play a math game Mm. um, or something. And so I think from like the psychological and like cognitive perspective, it's actually quite important for people um, to sort of, or for us to really like examine sort of the nuances of incorporating game-based assessments in classrooms if we really want to capture like people's potential. Mm. And on that note, another thing, um, another concept I think is really important here, and this is something that I learned from both Nancy and YJ because I wasn't coming into this project with an assessment background as much, um, is the idea of ecological validity. So I wonder if, um, Nancy, maybe you could describe that. Yeah, so... So there's a big issue with like testing, like specifically cognitive functions. Like if we're really interested in, in assessing certain types of brain function, like your ability to attend to something, your ability to shift your attention from one thing to another, there's a lot of different cognitive assessments that we really want to run on you. Like we want to like um, sort of um, um, conduct. But the problem is that oftentimes um, what these assessments look like in the laboratory or in the real world, either in the classroom or, you know, counselor's office or wherever, um, they're really dry and boring. And so, um, you know, how can we actually find or create assessments that are, you know, as Louisa said, ecologically valid, like that actually, you know, sort of feel like a natural assessment that you have in the real world. Like, you know, like if you were driving, like how can we create an assessment that like, you know, that is essentially a proxy for like whether or not you're going to run through red, run through a red light, you know, like basically a test of inhibition without actually being dry and boring, but is actually going to actually test for this um, type of function. And so um, game-based assessments allow us, you know, to sort of be a little bit more ecologically valid because they feel more like the type of test you would actually take in the real world, you know, like not like actually taking tests that you have on a computer screen or on a pen and paper, but something that you would actually like, you know, if you're going to like, you know, have someone complete a maze or like some kind of, you know, like, I don't know, some kind of um, um, something that would actually test your abilities in real life. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's, I think that's what Louise is getting at right there. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The, the, what's the, what's the real life context? Like we're not just giving people assessments just so we can measure them. Although a lot of times it feels like that, but Mm -hmm. in, you know, in the best scenario, we're giving people assessments so that they can actually get feedback on, on what they're doing and where they, where they might need to grow and who ultimately cares how you perform in a lab setting or even, even in a classroom setting, you know, when you think about what's coming after school. Mm. So if, if games can make a more authentic environment that is, you know, has more in common with real world thinking, then that's, that's huge. Yeah. Can we, can we just set, set a spectrum for, for that? Right. So like on the, what's a, what's an example of a, um, an assessment that's just a terrible fit from the sort of ecological validity perspective that you're presenting. 
Oh, I have plenty of examples. Okay, yeah. what, what's Let a good me one? Take that one. Okay, these are these are very common and still um, co- like you know like you know very much used in all the laboratories that I've ever worked in. But um, some of like some cognitive assessments that I'm thinking of, like for example, if I wanted to test your um, you know like attention and inhibition abilities, like basically like you know can I predict whether or not you're going to run a red light or whether or not you're going to like commit a crime, right? Or if you're going to like, you know, take the last piece of cake when you're not supposed to or something. Like a lot of these tests in the laboratory are actually like, you you sit in front of a computer screen and I will flash like letters and numbers at you, like D and P or for example. And you're only supposed to click, like press a button when you see a certain type of D or P. That's a very classic type of, Mm-hmm. you know, test. Oftentimes when I administer these tests though, I've noticed that li- people will literally put their finger on the target key that they're supposed to put. And they're like, look spacing out. They're just like looking around the room or they're just like looking at the clock and trying to figure out like how, like how much time do they have to sit through this really boring task? Yep. And so that's a very classic example of like capturing someone's, at least a lab-based assessment of like capturing someone's attention or inhibition. That would obviously give you very different results than if you actually tested, like, does does Mark actually run red lights? You know, like it probably would have very low predictive validity. Okay. I kind of want to. I think it would be helpful to differentiate kind of psycho- psychological measurement slash instrument, which is what uh, Nancy is talking about, and thinking about educational assessment, kind of things like math and um, English and science that teachers are more familiar with as uh, learning objectives and uh, disciplines. And as Nancy pointed out, a lot of this lab test, lab-based testing instruments of psychological measures and cognitive ability and things like that for years has been approaching this way. So that's obviously one limitation of creating a a measure that people really cannot deeply engage with. Mm. But I also want to point out that in terms of as a educational assessment, a game as an educational assessment, young people play games all the time. And I feel like one kind of strength of a game is assessment is some that's something they always do. And they just have very positive, positive experience to begin with. So incorporating that and, you know, really deeply, um, integrating that in what they do in inside of school seems to kind of no brain to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I kind of want to point out that as a, you know, yes, like there's a problem of a lot of this assessment and tasks that are really not authentic. Mm-hmm. That's one issue. Therefore not engaging. Therefore people not really investing and doing their best effort. Therefore the uh, assessment is not actually accurate. Mm-hmm. And then another kind of aspect to think about this is, well, people are already playing games and they really like it. So how can we actually leverage that? Mm-hmm. So here's a question um, that may take me a second to get to the crux of, but what's more important? Is it more important that um, the assessment um, feels to the learner like a friendly, familiar space, right? So um, this would be the case of like an educator who uses Wheel of Fortune or the mechanics of Wheel of Fortune to like deliver up a quiz. Um, Or is it more important that the, that ecological validity you were talking about where it's actually assessing within the situation of doing the thing that's actually being assessed? Um, I think it's both. And the reason why it's both is that, you know, I mean, we talked about this chocolate-covered broccoli a little bit earlier (laughs) about kind of borrowing mechanics or game-like features in kind of boring stuff. Uh, Is it, you know, does does it do any good to students? And I would say in classroom assessment, uh, you know, like making it, making even assessment fun, therefore like really encouraging all kids kind of participate who, you know, especially the kids who might not just participate when, if you're asking them as a very like crazy, crazy, is that even a word? Quiz like format. I think that is a very positive thing. 
So yes, it's still quiz. Yes, it's kind of gamified, but because it's a playful, they can have a positive experience and they actually participate more. Then I think there are definitely benefits in terms of you know teacher understanding where kids are at. Mm. Um, so it I think there's also place for more robust game-based assessment that has strong construct and ecological validity. Therefore, it can really change how assessment is being done and used in former spaces. Uh, therefore, we can slowly replace some of the existing ways of measuring things with better assessment. Uh, so I'll say both. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. I think there's a place for everything. Um, but I think what's what's important to think about when you're designing games and assessments and game-based assessments or when you're choosing them or implementing them is to really think about what is aligned with the the things you really care about, the things that you want to measure. Um, so on our on our team, when we were designing these these games and working on these projects, we we talked about that all the time. You know, what what do we value? What do we really care about? What do we, what, whatever we build into the game, whatever we communicate to teachers in the data dashboard, you know, what does that say about what we value and what we believe about learning? And I think that when you think about a, you know, a, a rich game environment, it, um, it, it gives students a chance to demonstrate their learning in so many of these future ready skills, 21st century skills, you know, we have executive function and persistence and creativity and problem solving along with our math standards. Um, and those kinds of skills are very hard to get at with more conventional types of assessments. So there's definitely a place for those kind of gamified conventional assessments um, because they are more, they're more kind of, um, accessible and palatable and they, they do give teachers a quick pulse check. Um, and that's really important, but I think an important distinction is like, what, what can you measure with that? And what do we really care about? Mm. Can you describe some experiments in this space that, um, you're, you're basing work on? Let me put that one, one more way. I think a lot of people that I hear refer to gamification and every, you know, I'll, I will frequently hear, as I'm sure you all do, um, everything is gamification these days, you know. Um, and I think that game-based, you know, folks make an assumption that game-based assessment sort of comes with this um, trend in uh, of instructional practice kind of picking up on um, the fact that young people are playing games, but this is actually a longer history. Um, and I just want to bring that out and kind of talk a little bit about some of the early experiments that you all are basing this work on. So can you share some of some sort of classic examples that, that predate um, I'm air quoting like gamified instruction or gamified learning? I can take a stab at it. <laughs> yeah. So game base or looking at game as a way to understand what people are learning and how people are learning uh, that might look different from how people are learning from schooling. That kind of line of thinking work goes way back to, I would say, like early 2000. Um Although there is a classic literature that goes even beyond that, but that kind of the huge kind of body of, in a way, movement. It was, I see this as a, a movement, kind of started early 2000, um, uh, looking at what people are uh, learning from playing games. Uh, so that kind of one good example that I always think about is um, how uh, civilization, uh, it's such a great game to uh teach by just playing the game, you just pick up all kinds of things, right? Like you understand historical context, you do, you engage uh, historical reasoning, uh, and it's not an educational game. Uh, and people look into that game and uh, they documented uh, how this actually helped kids to better 
with uh, history uh, in, inside of schools. Mm-hmm. So that kind of goes back to start understanding what affordances of games for learning and cognitive development and things like that. Uh, so it started from that kind of way of looking at it. Uh, in the more psychology world, uh, people are looking at uh, even games like um, uh, some violent games, right? Like playing violent games, like does that do any good? Uh, and people realize that sometimes that actually can help pro-social behavior, behaviors if it, if it has collaboration kind of uh, mechanic into that. Uh, so people start understanding those affordances first. That was the kind of the beginning of this whole movement. And then people start, okay, can we create educational games? So some people call this serious games. Some people call this um, like training games, education games. Uh, and these are the games that kind of started, start coming out from more research labs, uh, trying to marry learning mechanics how, and some academic standards and uh, you know, things that people care about inside of school with games and start developing games for learning and education. Mm-hmm. Um, so some early examples, um, I don't think they're particularly good, but like things like the, you know, like shooting games, like bit, uh, marrying the walking around and shooting numbers. So instead of summing things up, like you actually shoot things and that's like kind of teach you how to sum to fraction and things like that using those kind of mechanics. Uh, so that was a kind of earlier work in terms of educational games. It got so much better, but that's like the very early examples of educational games. Are you intentionally not wanting to call out Math Blaster? That is it, right? I didn't say that. Should <laughs> <laughs> um, I cut that out? <laughs> no, I think what you said is flattering. You know, I, I think that anybody who is experimenting with joining uh mechanics with assessment at that stage was pioneering and um, it was i hear people refer to math Buster really affectionately um often so um that was not a knock on on anybody that's good yeah, i don't want to offend anybody no but i mean because that was actually one of the old very early work that actually has empirical evidence for learning and how uh educational game can foster academic uh, achievement. Uh, so in that sense, definitely valuable. And then there were um, group of people who started thinking about like, what are affordances of games for assessment? Uh, so that's like late 2000 and people started making games explicitly for assessment purposes mm-hmm. and uh, investigate can a good game can be also good assessment because it requires different kind of qualities. So create a game specifically for assessment purposes and looking at that kind of psychometric qualities. Is this valid? Is this reliable? Is this fair? Um, and it was. It was. We had a scientific evidence that supports that it can be fun experience, but it can be also robust assessment. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't need to sacrifice uh, assessment qualities for uh, engagement and fun. So those are kind of the earlier uh, work or earlier that I, I, I think of when I think about this kind of arc of work for years. And then um, people start kind of expanding way beyond that, right? Like, you know, because of the advancement of, you know, big data, data science and things like that, people start realizing, oh my God, game is a great in- environment for generating all kind of data. I mean, mm-hmm. it generates so much data. What are we going to do with this? And can we understand how people are playing, learning um, from this kind of more open-ended, big kind of data without really thinking about assessment, measurement things in advance? So like application of learning analytics and educational data mining um, in more uh, open-ended game environments becomes kind of Become, kind of became known at this point. Uh, so when people are looking at learning in games, at the very beginning, people are just looking at post and pre and post kind of measures outside of games, like have people play game, but we're still going to have quizzes at the re- beginning, at the end mm-hmm. to compare what you learn from that. Uh, but, but now in 2021, 
I hope that people do the less. And we're actually using the data that are being generated in the games to understand how Louisa plays different from Nancy and what does it tell us about their different abilities, their different styles. And yeah. So I wanna I wanna come back to that because I wanna have you all describe a little bit for me what what that kind of environment looks and feels like in some practical examples that I can link to in the show notes and have people um, dig into. The question I want to ask before that is just to, um, I think that a lot of educators think of the idea of like gamified as essentially the practice of stealing engagement tactics from games and supplanting them into learning environments. And I, I wonder from your perspective, whether uh, I can intuit from previous answers, what I, what I think your response to that would be, but I wonder whether it's worthwhile to think of it that way or, or, or does this do more harm than good in the way that it kind of, maybe simple oversimplifies or or kind of distracts people from what is really the purpose. So that's why in our work we think a lot about playfulness. A more kind of broader game is a very structured form of play. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of things that are uh not game but so playful. It has its own set of affordances. And I think that borrowing mechanics like rewards, like you know those like that, like the scoring, what's more called skill skill board, like scoring system kind of thing from the game and reward kind of thing from game to gamify assessment. I see that I see that as a problematic because it, you're just really relying on extrinsic motivation rather than really like really fostering in, intrinsic motivation and engagement and students' interest. So I'll say that is bad <laughs> or mm -hmm. harmful. Uh, but if you're thinking assessment a little bit more broadly and trying to make the whole experience more playful, where there are more choices in terms of students you can make, there's uh, different levels of uh, effort that you can put into. There are different levels of um, uh, consequences, right, that you can have. Uh, and if you're opening up the assessment space a little bit more, therefore students can have more playful experience with that. That's one take. I would say, you know, as we as we sort of described before, that layer of, of game elements that's separate from the learning, um, it's not all bad. I, I totally agree with the reasons that it's problematic, as YJ described. Um, it's not all bad. It's not like you should never have points, right? Mm. <laughs> but it's again, it's it's really thinking about well, what's the purpose of this? I think the I think it's a it's it's not that it's harmful in itself, but it is a problem when it's used and then people's, whether it's designers or educators, think, okay, well, I've added these elements, so now I'm done. Right. I've I've added that. So now it's good. Now now kids will want to play it and they're learning better. Mm -hmm. No, that doesn't really make them learn better. Um, but I think not everybody understands these distinctions. And so there's there's a risk of people thinking, yeah, this is great. This is the next big thing. Um, but it, once again, it's a kind of technology that doesn't transform learning. It doesn't deepen the learning. It doesn't bring in students who are disengaged and marginalized. And it, it, it doesn't um, center learners. So, you know, again, the this approach where learning and assessment are, are much more intertwined. Um, we think that, that that way of thinking about assessment in general and game-based assessment is much more powerful in terms of deeper learning and also empowering students. Mm -hmm. So if you know it, it, we want assessment to not feel like something that's being done to you. We want it to feel like something that you're engaging with and you're, you're exploring and you're getting useful feedback on what you're doing well and what what areas you want to grow in and and giving students some say in that. And that doesn't only come from the game itself. It has to also come from the implementation and how it's being used and, you know, the much, much wider ecosystem. Um, but, yeah, those are those are some things where I think it's it's not that gamification is always negative. But if you if you see it as the you know the 
as if you see it as like the main goal or, you know, once I've done that, then I'm, then this is good learning. I think then, then it's a problem. Yeah. Watch a back to your point about, you know, where we are in 2021, there are examples of projects that are happening that are, um, you know, not, not so sort of pre-imposed, uh, you know, and, and traditional in that sense. Can you describe, um, one or two projects that are really exciting, maybe maybe some of your own um, that yielded surprises and exciting outcomes uh, that would help somebody who's learning about this for the first time understand what this looks like in the form. You know, I, I'm careful not to say ideal form because that because it feels like we don't yet know really what the ideal is and the ideal is so tied to whatever context we're assessing. So I'll, I'll I'll keep myself from describing that way, but what are the, uh, describe some of the forms where this is emerging that excite us as educators, as researchers that um, are yielding uh, outcomes that wouldn't be possible without thinking of assessment in this way. So I want to kind of broaden why games are good for assessment beyond just because it is interesting environment kind of notion. And I kind of mentioned earlier, games are great in terms of generating a lot of data as well. And I think a lot of about former learning space and how game lives in that ecosystem and what is the role of teachers. Uh, and what are some of the kind of systemic design that already exists that wraps around assessment. Mm -hmm. um, so one surprising thing that we learned from our own project called Shadow Spect uh, is that, so in 2020, is the last year 20? I don't remember. Yep. Yeah. So we worked with uh, eight practice math teachers as co-designers uh, to think about uh, data visualization and kind of reporting system based on this uh, shadow spec, which is a 2D, 3D uh, puzzle-based uh, math game that are aligned, that is aligned with uh, uh, common core standards. And we worked with them to understand like how, what kind of data visualization, visualization what kind of assessment coming out from this game actually is use, useful for teachers? And one surprising thing that, that I learned from that is how game is great at uh, recognizing things like persistence that teachers often don't think about as a, although they all personally value, they will say that I care about my students being persistent because that's a lifelong skill. However, because they're always so busy with covering content, busy with being compliant, uh, being compliant with standards, they don't have a concrete opportunity to be able to implement that in their own curriculum. So how much they like realize from that experience, like, oh, these are things that I actually value. And I have this concrete and rigorous tool to be able to see that in my students' work. So that affordance as a uh, as an assessment tool that really illuminate constructs and skills beyond academic standards and what that means to teachers that was really rewarding and surprising uh, yeah and if I can add on to that with this example of persistence um, another thing that that came out very loud and clear in our co-design work was that the it's not enough to say, okay, this game measures persistence. We really have to dig in and say, well, what does persistence look like? What does persistence actually mean to you? What is it about being persistent that you value? So we had you know, this collaboration with a, um, a number of different math teachers in different contexts and also um, game designers and um, data scientists. And I would say, especially people coming from these different disciplines really had different ideas and different assumptions about what was valuable. Like, 
and this gets in, this is both uh, sort of um, conceptual, like what does it mean to be persistent? But it gets into the, the most nitty gritty you could possibly get of like literally what telemetry data should we use and how should we combine it with other data to create a metric that we are then showing to teachers? And then it gets into like when we're when we're showing this to teachers as part of a game-based assessment or showing it to students, how much do we need to explain about where this metric came from? Right? It's one thing to just say, hey, here's your persistence score, or here's your your set of things that describe your persistence. But if teachers don't even know where that came from, then how meaningful is it really? You know, does persistence mean does it does it just mean you played for a long time and you played all of the puzzles? Or does it mean that when you faced a challenge, you would sometimes take a break, but then come back to it? You know, does it incorporate all those things? And so working with teachers um, was so great because they contributed all these conceptual thoughts about what, when knowing, being familiar with the gameplay and having watched some of them, their students play, they had ideas about what what literally what are students doing that that they would consider persistent and then as a team we had the the challenge of translating that into actual metrics and so i think it's it's both a challenge but also a huge opportunity for game based assessments that they they can it takes a lot of thought and design um but they can incorporate you know many different facets of a skill like persistence nancy from your perspective what do you think or have you seen from experimenting with tools like this, we learn about students and um, the sort of frames of mind that they're bringing to the task at hand. You know, so YJ, Louise, and I came together to to create an, you know, a novel game-based assessment of cognitive functions, um, like specifically executive functions, which have been really, you know, getting a lot of, I would say, hype in the world. Um, Chan Zuckerberg has spent millions of dollars investing in this area, as well as Google and a lot of other places. But um, so executive functions are really important for people's, um, they're highly predictive of like learning outcomes, um, more so than actually IQ. And so people have been really interested in this core cognitive function called executive function. And so YJ Louise and I came together to really, to create a game-based assessment of executive functions. But, you know, more importantly, we're really interested in how these executive functions operate in a social emotional context or in an emotional context, like in a, in a, in a context that, you know, that varies in stress because oftentimes, you know, when we're thinking about students and, you know, education and our schooling system, it's not, you know, necessarily like a, an environment that's, you know, that's, um, that's void of stress. It's, it's oftentimes a very stressful experience when you think of like high stakes testing and things like that. Right. And so we really wanted to create this game-based assessment that looked at executive functions in the context of stress. And so, um, we created this, uh, this, um, game called aqua pressure and I've run a series of research studies. And the first one actually kind of speaks to this idea of like how, you know, like your question. And we recently got the data for it, um, which is really exciting because um, in the study, it was, we completed, um, we, it was an experimental design study. So we had, um, you know, participants who were randomly assigned to one of two conditions and, um, and, uh, their participants were either told that they're going to play a game or participants were told, you know, which is condition a, or they're told that they're going to take a test. Um, but unbeknownst to these participants, they're all playing or they're all taking part in aqua pressure, which is this game-based assessment. So they're all getting the same thing, but they all have different notions of what they're getting. Like one group of students thinks that they're getting a game and the other group of students is they're taking a test. And throughout this experimental study, we also, you know, took lots of, um, you know, you know, measurements in terms of like their affect, so like how they're feeling, their stress levels, like how much, how anxious they're feeling, you know, are they confident going into this, you know, into this, into this, um, this, uh, thing that they're in the task. And um, it was really interesting because from our preliminary findings, at least from the self-report, um, you know, the people, the participants who were told that they were playing a game, they had significantly lower stress levels than the people who were told that they were taking the test. So going into the task, going into, you know, um, the session, 
like one group of students were significantly more stressed than the other students. Um, and interestingly, you know, because like they all ended up, you know, doing the same thing, they're all playing aqua pressure, which is, you know, feels a little bit gamey and also, also feels a little bit assessment me like their stress levels eventually met, like were the same for the mm. two groups, but going into it, they had a very different mindset. One group was significantly more stressed out than the other. And so I think that really speaks to, you know, like the psychological mindset that people are going into when they're taking a test or when they're playing a game and like the sort of the value of things like a game-based assessment. Um, you know, if we really want to lower people's stress levels, right. And if we want to like not have them have an anxiety attack or be, you know, just like super like, you know, um, anxious, then it's important to be able to, to consider their mindset and their psychological, like, um, a state. Yeah. In, in a nutshell, what was the difference between the performance at the beginning when those two, when one learner was super stressed and one learner was not, um, what was the difference in performance between the two? So we haven't, um, fully, uh, we haven't fully evaluated the performance differences, but just like the psychological self-reported differences showed a very like, you know, a large effect size. It was like very, um, very robust finding between like how these two groups were feeling. So in terms of stress and anxiety levels, the group that were, you know, was assigned to the test condition or told that they were taking a test, they were significantly more stressed and anxious than the other group that were told that they were taking it, playing a game. Got it. So we don't, at at some point we'll, we'll, not yet. Yeah. That. It's TBD, I would say. Right. Um, not safe to say, I would assume that if we, if I just say to my own kids, we're going to play a game called the SAT, that it's going to have a huge, um, <laughs> a huge impact on their performance. It might, you know, I think the interesting question for me right now is how long does this affect of, in terms of you know, minimizing their stress levels. How long does it last? Does it last for the entire duration of, you know, the task? Because if it does, I think that I would predict a difference in their performance levels, you know, but if it doesn't, if it, say, if it's like very short lived, like if it's like only five minutes and it's only at the very beginning, they're like, wait a second, you know, you told me that I'm playing a game, but this definitely feels like a, you're <laughs> right. kind of, you know, you're tricking me. Yeah. Then obviously that effect will go away. Right. So I, I think the question for me is how long does this effect last? Yeah. And then I would say the question, I mean, you're, you know, you're kidding, but, but also to, to take it seriously, um, you know, what Wajay mentioned earlier is it, it goes back to, is the task or the game or the assessment or whatever it is, is it actually playful? Yeah. Does it actually give this sense of agency and, and iteration and joy and delight and all the, all the things that, that are, could be included in the definition of play, um, you know, if you tell someone it's a game, but then it's obviously not, then yeah, you can't really fool them. But right. if you, if it's something that could be seen as either one, um, then maybe that, that effect could, could actually tell you something. Yeah. I, I want to add one thing Please. in terms, I mean, you're really trying to get this notion of um, intentionality and especially in use in a lab setting, in using classroom setting. And I, I personally think that how that kind of setting, how the game is situated and the, the understanding of the set and like, you know, expectations and goals that are imposed by researcher or teachers, how that affect one's experience. I think that's one area that hasn't been fully understood in the kind of the, the body of literature in terms of, especially in terms of educational games, because for past 10 years, we've been accumulating a lot of evidence in terms of how this is good for learning. But a lot of kids are still forced to play in classrooms, right? So that kind of notion of, is it still fun and playful when you're forced to play? I don't think we have a really good understanding of that yet as a field. Right. Right. And it really ties back to, you know, these much bigger principles of, of learning and learning design, um, which YJ is, is saying have to have to be taken into account in the implementation in the ecosystem of, of any of these interventions. Um, you know, things like student agency and um, student centered learning, like students are if students are told you have to play this game. Yeah, maybe it's better than what they would have done, better than what they would normally do in the classroom. It's a, a learning game might be better than that. Um, but it still might not be what they would choose. And even these, these games like Shadow Spectre and Aqua Pressure that we've designed and we think they're good, 
But somebody telling the student, this is what you have to learn. This is how you have to demonstrate these skills. Even that is, it's not all the way there to student-centered learning. You know, we should have all of these resources, games, and 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 um, other hands-on activities and, and project-based opportunities and all these kinds of things um, for students to choose from and choose, you know, what are their interests? What skills do they want to build? How do they want to demonstrate their learning? Uh, so that's, I think that's part of a vision that I know some of us share for a much bigger picture and maybe paradigm shift in in what is learning and assessments. Yeah, because it, it, well, it dawns on me that if, um, if we were, it almost feels like the mechanics need to be as um, personalized as um, we consider the instruction or the tools for instruction needing to be. And what I mean by that is if you simply said that, you know, the, the, the context that we're in, the right assessment is going to be Sudoku. That's going to be your assessment. You know, for some learners, Sudoku has a set of mechanics that are, uh, or even like we could go to my SAT example. There are some learners who see the SAT who like, bought it when their tutor said, like, it's a game, uh, see? And for and, them, it is a game. You play the game right. of doing test prep and, and right. you know, getting where, a strategy for college. Where for, where for me, that didn't work. Um, so so it, uh, it, it depends on, I, I suppose there's an ideal in the future where um, you would have, you would be able to draw from set of mechanics that could be as personalized as the instruction is that part of the ideal for the future is that they would have that set of flexible tools i would say in addition to that we're just looking at more kind of game-centric way Mm -hmm. looking at human-centric way thinking about Mm -hmm. teachers yeah and really helping teachers and care providers like really helping or building the capacity of the ecosystem around the games. So teachers can do, okay, this game, like I can see this game is great for some uh, subgroups of my students, but I can see sometimes not going to like this. Right. Maybe forcing is not a good idea. How should I design learning experience around this that still honors students' agency, but still help them to engage in a meaningful way that still provide a good sense of where they are at. Yeah. So really like building the capacity and creating the the games and the, the uh, tools around the game that really allow that kind of decision-making for end users. Uh, I think that's something that we sh- I don't think we have good understanding as a field, uh, how good teaching implementation look like in classrooms yet. And what is that teacher competency in terms of you know, when Louisa really, really leverage games in a student-centered way that really include all different kind of learners. Mm-hmm. How did it look like? We don't have a good sense of that yet. Yeah. Uh, so I'll say, yes, more diverse uh, mechanics of uh, games, games that has, you know, more uh, choices and diverse purposes and whatever, that's one way to go about this. But also thinking about how can we really build the teacher's capacity as well so they can design the whole learning experience around the games that are really um, impactful? I think that's another really important question that I'm personally very passionate about. And um, I feel like that's one area that really hasn't been understood that well yet. Yeah. I feel like um, for those for those looking for dissertation topics, I'm going to point them to this episode where you all have have thrown down uh, three or four really juicy questions. Maybe like ten really juicy questions have come up in the course of this conversation. Where I was hoping to land is just to talk a little bit about what we know in terms of principles or practical takeaways that have come from the the research you all have been conducting and just what we know from this space and the history that you described, YJ, from, you know, somewhere in the ballpark of 2000 onward. 
Um, what are some of the principles that you think can be practically considered and implemented even from an educator's point of view when they get back from break or, uh, you know, next week? One really core principle of game-based learning, game-based assessment, just thinking about game uh, as a as a way to make learning more fun and meaningful uh, better, I will say is that create reasons for uh, problems. Don't just give them a problem and expect them to do well, but create reasons why that problem matters to them. And I think that's just kind of the core principle of good games. Um, you know, the, the example that I use for is uh, uh, Super Mario. Like, why is there suddenly mushrooms? Why, you know, like, and there, you know, there are reasons why people, uh, why there are mushrooms? Like, they're, you're curious about it, right? So, you know, that's something that I think any educators, any parent can implement very easily uh, to really make learning more fun and engaging mm. uh, for people, for students. So I'll say that when students come back safely from this holiday <laughs> break, um, you know, just try to make one small change in how you're thinking about your, um, I don't know, like math lesson where they, you can make them curious about, hmm, what is that? Like, what, what should I do with that mm. kind of thing? Mm. Nice. I think. I think that's a great one. And I will choose for my uh, principal and hopefully actionable item, um, adding a little bit more reflective practice. Um, I think that reflective practice has has a lot of overlap with self-assessment, um, although the two have kind of different connotations. Um, but I think it's so important in empowering students and um, listening to students and, and also building these skills of lifelong learning where students um, are asked to articulate for themselves how they demonstrated their learning and what, what they've learned, what they can do now that they couldn't do before. And practically speaking, some of the ways to do that kind of reflection and self-assessment around games, whether it's you know a game-based assessment like the ones we've worked on or a learning game or any game that you're using in the classroom, um, would be, you know, after students have played and had this shared experience, whether it's a collaborative game or an individual game, is to give them some reflection prompts where they have to compare their strategies. Uh, they might discover that other students maybe accomplished some the same thing, but in a completely different way. Mm -hmm. um, and ask them, ask them to reflect on, you know, not just their the math standards or whatever um, subject area but also these kind of future ready skills, you know, and, and give some examples and, and encourage and scaffold students to think about, okay, was I persistent in this? What did I do when I was frustrated? What did I do when I, when I um, got something wrong? Did I give up? Did I ask a classmate for help? Did I search the internet for, for cheat codes? You know, any of those things are, are ways that they might show resourcefulness and um, persistence and creative problem solving. So even just asking students to to articulate for themselves, like what, how did you get through this difficult thing? Mm -hmm. um, that that is so important for learning. And then hopefully that those are things that they'll kind of gradually do more naturally as they're playing games or doing other kinds of learning. Just reflect and say, okay, I, I could have done better in this area. I'll try that next time. Um, sharing strategies and and understanding that you know everyone is coming from a different place and everyone is on their own pathway. Terrific. Okay, I'll I'll um, have a maybe a very different principle then. Um, I was going to say that I think if you know for those who are interested in really capturing um, you know like teachers like like you know really interesting capturing um, a person's 
like capacity or their optimal cognitive skills or, or even like having or allowing them an environment which they can like really thrive and do their best. I think it's important to really consider, um, the social emotional environment and how that is impacting their core cognitive skills, whether that's like, you know, um, like what are the elements that might be increasing or decreasing stress and anxiety levels? Because we know that there is a very strong relationship between how we feel and how our brain is functioning um, and performing. And so um, a principle that I'm taking away from all of this work is that whether or not it's through game-based assessments um, in, in capturing these core cognitive skills, or if it's just sort of like a classroom or home environment, um, being cognizant and very much aware of how these other elements, um, you know, in these environments sort of interact with our brain functions is like, is, is very important. And so that's sort of my principle that I would, you know, give away to, um, educators and teachers and people who are interested in this work. Great. Can, can I add one more principle? Yeah, please. I can't believe I didn't say this, but normalizing failure. Failure is something that is mm. so part of, such an important part of learning and playing games. Uh, so like, you know, celebrating uh, failing. Failing is part of learning. And unless you failed enough in the game, you actually never make it to boss level. Mm -hmm. So uh, having... Um, like even changing the kind of expectation, like, oh, like what is the awesome failing you did here that tell us to how to solve this problem better? And that's awesome. I, I know that some folks uh, in the space of like mathematical thinking, uh, they borrow that principle, kind of celebrating like awesome mistakes or failing a students made and how that helps to do math better. So I think that's something that anybody can implement. I'm trying to implement it in my own life, really. I have two and a half year old who somehow hate failing. And I don't know where she's coming from. I always tell her, failing is part of learning. It's a good thing. <laughs> and she that. So, you know, I'm trying to do that better with my own life too. You know, it's so interesting. It's both, uh, I learned from my own kids as well that uh, there is that combination of, um, just who people are and would and what uh, affinity or resistance they might have to failure. Um, uh, there's that, but there's also obviously the learned sort of attitude and and uh, finding that balance is um, uh, well when you when you uh, when someone reads or writes that book, you let me know because i'm I'm ready to uh, to read it. My kids might be too old by then. Um, hey, where should people follow if they want to stay uh, in the know about what's happening in this space? What are the, is there a conference they should be at? Is there a Twitter yes. handle that is really important? Is there somebody on LinkedIn to go find? Go find us on <laughs> LinkedIn. So you're, you're, your bios and info are all going to be in the in the notes for the episode. And who should I add? So if you want to learn about uh, ShadowSpec, because ShadowSpec is a uh, part of migrating to Wisconsin. So we're hoping that we're going to have kind of nice open data infrastructure where all these games can be played and data can be uh, widely available. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know... For those, for ShadowSpec specifically, you know, you can follow me, you can find me on Twitter and things like that. Uh, for, in terms of community, uh, in kind of education space, I will say there are three conferences, Plate Make Learn, that is always hosted in summer at University of Wisconsin-Madison. There are a lot of game uh, designers, educators, uh, researchers come to that conference. And I, I'm mentioning this because I'm the committee <laughs> who organize it. Uh, and there's also this uh, Connected Learning Summit. A lot of MIT folks uh, are participating in that space as well. And there is a revival of the old conference we used to have called uh, GLS, which is Games Learning Society. And this year it's going to be at UC Irvine in summer. So those are three conferences. All three conferences have Twitter. So following that can be a good place to uh, kind of to know what's happening. And all three conferences are very um, 
not really like researcher centric, really open to uh, everybody in the ecosystem, including parents to educators to designers. Um, and in terms of hashtag uh, GBL, game-based learning hashtag, I, I believe it's still alive, is the, a lot of the educators who love games follow that uh, hashtag as well. Nancy, Louisa, YJ, thank you so much for your time. And and uh, I think that folks are going to take a lot from the conversation. It was terrific chatting and meeting each of you. And I hope can bring you back at some point and hear about the sort of next chapter in the journey for this work. Yeah, thank, thank you so much, Mark. Thank you. For more info about advertising with us, sponsoring the show, or if you have story ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter, at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in episode zero, alumni of two bomber nations, Ithaca and the Bronx, New York, and engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No such thing is produced by me. Mark Lesser, a learner like you and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org.